your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. We're all originals. You've all made America better, a better place, and you've made us seem a better place in the eyes of the people of the world. I'm Ian Wilder. I'm Fiona Hatch. I'm Sarah Nels. I'm Tyler Katzenberger. And I'm Allison Keeley. You're listening to 1050 Basco, a podcast brought to you by the UW-Madison Political Science Department. On this episode of 1050 Bascom, we are happy to welcome back Kathleen Bartson Culver to the podcast. Kathleen is director of and professor in the University of Wisconsin Madison School of Journalism and Mass Communication, as well as the director of the Center for Journalism Ethics. She also serves as visiting faculty for the Pointer Institute for Media Studies and was the founding editor of PBS Media Shift's education section. Culver's current work explores journalism's relationship with the public and free expression controversies on college campuses. Today, we wanted to start by asking Professor Culver about her interest and take on free speech debates on campus, including here at UW-Madison. We deeply enjoyed our conversation with Professor Culver, and we hope that you will too. Thank you so much for joining us today, Katie. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I'm happy to be here. Can you start off by giving us just a general overview of what the free speech debate looks like in the U.S. right now when it comes to college campuses in particular? Oh, really? Well, college campuses in particular would be the battleground for free expression (laughs) debates right now. As I think it's a surprise to no one, we're fighting a culture war and campuses are an important battleground. External actors, I think, have a lot of influence in these debates. They don't tend to come organically um, from students or faculty or staff. There's a lot of external influence that is both funding and fueling some of these controversies. That's not to say that there aren't um, organic controversies that happen, absolutely, Uh, but I think we're seeing some people using students and campuses as a means to fight other battles. And what are the limitations right now of the First Amendment in school settings? Well, let's deal primarily with public institutions because private institutions, um, they're not bound by the First Amendment. You have no First Amendment right um, at Marquette University. They can can do pretty much what they want when it comes to your speech. Uh, But for public institutions, students and faculty and staff enjoy robust First Amendment protections. There is very little that isn't protected under the First Amendment in the U.S. We are arguably the most speech-protected country in the world. Mm. It's a very libertarian philosophy, the way it's interpreted in the U.S. There are some things that never receive First Amendment protection, so things like true threats, uh, bribery. I can't uh, say, you know, I'll give you 10 bucks to give me a positive course evaluation (laughs) in my media law class. Perjury, uh, those sorts of things. I think probably the most active um, of those right now would be what some people call child pornography, but what I would call child sexual abuse materials. I really hope we move away from any conception that a child could ever be part of pornography, which is generally seen as more acceptable. Um, But there is no protection for those sexual abuse materials under the First Amendment. And then also something called true threats. And true threats was part was on the docket for the Supreme Court uh, this term. And uh, I'm sure we'll get to be talking about that a little bit more later in the podcast. So going back for a moment to campus, when we are looking at campus and thinking about free speech at UW historically, I think of the student Vietnam protests and some of the really rich activism and protest history that we have had here on campus. What has changed over the last 60 years or so? And what are we seeing today that is so different? 
What we're seeing now is a little bit more of um, external actors incentivizing students to get involved in this. So, you know, paying them to blog about something they disagree with on their, their professor's syllabus and sort of ginning things up. Um, and so I think that is a difference from the protests back then to the protests now. We still do have um, sort of waves of authentic student protests. We certainly saw it on campus. Um, in the summer of 2020, we saw it just this past spring with the horrible racist video that um, that uh, caught fire um, on social media. Um, and I think that that's all expression that's worth protecting. And I think I think in some parts of the country, we're more restrictive of protest than I ever thought that we would be. Um, some of these anti-protest laws are really really quite stunning to me. I mean, going off of that, um, while we're talking about UW Madison. Um, how has our institution been a part of these debates in recent years, in your view, especially that debate between free speech versus, you know, protecting certain rights, especially in light of recent events with that racist video that came out a few months ago? So when you say protecting rights, do you mean protecting the idea of an inclusive campus, of people's yes, sense of something belonging? something more like that, yeah. You know, so this is something that's driven me nuts for decades now. And it comes from both the left and the right flank, ideologically. Um, I think right now we're feeling it more from the right, but I think in the past we felt it more from the left. And that is some people would like to sell students what I would call a false binary, that you can have free expression on campus or you can have an inclusive campus, but you can't have both. And I think that's just a pile of baloney. <laughs> to be honest, it, you, you can have both. You can be broadly protective of expression and encourage that sense of belonging. But what it means is we all have to buy in. It means that when someone has a video that gets posted that has some of the most vile, disgusting language that I can remember in my time on this campus, all of the rest of us have to get in the game. I, as a professor, need to stand in front of my classroom and say, kills me that this would make any of you feel you don't belong here. And I'm tearing up a bit and saying, because I did stand in front of my classroom and say that, and I cried like a baby <laughs> while I was doing it. But, um, you know, a TA standing um, in front of a discussion section and saying, how are you guys feeling? Is this, does this make you feel excluded from this campus? And what can I do to correct that? It means students, student leaders, but then also just the average you know, walk into class student trying to do their best to say, look, that is protected expression and make no bones about it. It is protected expression. As much as that really pained people to hear, it was protected expression. There was nothing the university could do to expel that student. Yes, it's protected and it's rejected. We do not want that kind of expression on this campus. And I was glad to see more students getting in the game at that time and, and really um, you know, saying, this isn't what I want. This isn't the UW, I don't, I don't believe in that. This isn't the UW-Madison I want for myself and everyone else around me. I want a place where people belong. So I, ha I have for quite some time and will continue to do the work of trying to take down that false binary because you can have both and we need both. We have, we have to be able to speak. We have to be able to protest. Students have to be able to feel like they can question their professors and um, really engage meaningfully in intellectual discussion and sometimes debate. You have to be open to things that you disagree with. Now, 
Regarding that speech being protected, there are some who make pretty persuasive arguments that we do too much to protect Amendment 1 and too little to pay attention to Amendment 14, which provides us equal protection under the law. There's a fantastic book I recommend. It's, it's uh, really quite challenging to read. It's called The Cult of the Constitution by Marianne Franks. Um, and in it, she argues that the first, second, the first and the Second Amendment and protections for tech are uh, are part of the cult of the Constitution, and we, we do too much to protect those um, at the expense of the 14th. So it's an argument mm. worth, uh, worth um, interrogating. Interesting. And I'm wondering, as a professor yourself, what does free speech look like to you in the classroom, and what changes have you observed occurring in today's highly polarized environment? So that's an excellent question, um, and it's, it's changed quite a bit. So, you know, uh, but I teach a class in media law, um, so and I, and I tell my students all the time that uh, First Amendment history is littered with horrible, horrible people. Um, certainly some noble people, but no small amount of racists, misogynists, anti-Semitic people, um, Holocaust deniers, like insiders of violence. It is not, you know, we're not often protecting the speech that we like or that we support or value. Sometimes we're protecting the exact opposite. And that's that's hard to, that's hard to swallow, right? That's that's really difficult um, for people. But again, I like to tell my students, look, I want this to be a place everybody feels a sense of belonging, whether that's, you know, related to gender, related to race, related to your political ideology, your religious affiliation or lack thereof. Everybody belongs in this class and we have to be able to engage honestly with each other on that front. As things have gotten more polarized, it's interesting because there is this myth out there that a bunch of college professors like me are indoctrinating all our students to be a bunch of lefties. <laughs> but honestly, the makeup of my classes right now, I have to turn pretty hard left to see my average student. I mean, I, they are certainly um, pushing in progressive directions more so than I have seen in the past. That's not to say I don't have wonderful conservative students engaging in my classes. I sure do. But the tenor of my classrooms of the student body, it's almost more like they're indoctrinating me <laughs> or something. Um, but, uh, you know, I just don't see what gets described as, you know, these professors wielding their ideology. I just don't see that in my classrooms. It's definitely part of the partisan claims, attacks coming from the right on higher education, but I don't see it. Now, that said, I certainly know there are professors out there who are doing way more soapbox standing than they should be, um, where they are trying to tell their students uh, what to think instead of how to think. Um, how to engage critically, how to um, discern what is and isn't reliable information. In any profession, there are bad actors, you know? There are dishonest lawyers, there are drunk surgeons, <laughs> there are violent cops, you know? There are those, those people out there, but they're not in the main in my experience. In my experience, both as a student here and now um, with my colleagues as a faculty member, I see people who are really trying to do their best to help their students think critically, not vote in a certain way. So one of the things that's interesting with how campuses are painted and this question of indoctrination is really quite fascinating to me. The hardest topics in my law class aren't the hate speech topics, which are hard, 
they definitely are hard. Um, you know, Holocaust denial, cross burning, that sort of thing. But in the years I've been teaching it, the most difficult subject, bar none in my class, is abortion protests. So protests outside of clinics and how far the government can go to protect the people who work there and the patients who are getting reproductive health services. And I find that up until this past year, that was the place where students uh, self-censored the most. And look, some self-censorship is great. <laughs> when you censor yourself um, from sitting in the back of the classroom and saying, hey, Katie, your lecture's really boring today. Great, please, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that self-censorship. Um, but there are, there are other times where students do not want to speak up out of fear of offending. And sometimes that's the smart choice. But this is a really difficult and divisive issue in this country. And um, if we're not going to talk openly and honestly about what, for most people, are really nuanced positions. So we talk a lot about the, the polemics here, the opposite sides of the debate, but really the vast, vast majority of people are on the spectrum in the middle with comfort up to a certain point and comfort, you know, thinking, well, maybe not me, but I can't speak for someone else. Like these are very, very nuanced positions. And if we're not going to discuss them in class, then that just leaves the polls to dominate, you know, the people who are hard left, hard right to, to sort of control the debate and make it seem like there's this, this line. I will say the Dobbs decision last year kind of blew the lid off that. I had students in my classes, and not just my law class, but other classes as well, talking more about reproductive health than ever in my 20 plus years of teaching. And so it seems that losing a right made people more willing to talk about that. And taking a broader approach here, is Wisconsin unique in that the state legislature sometimes seems to oversee what goes on in the classroom? Or is that a more common theme across the nation? I would be careful saying that the legislature oversees what goes on in the classroom. I don't think you actually have that much of that. I, you know, as much as I'll use Representative Robin Voss as an example, as much as he would perhaps question the fact that I cover critical race theory as a theory in my law class. It's not an endorsement, but it's it's a theory that's out there. It's, it's actually critical legal theory is what I cover. Um, you might not like that, but he's not doing anything to directly control that. This legislative session and the fiscal meddling with DEI efforts and DEI staff, that's the most direct influence. Well, that and the um, anti-protest policy, the, pun the protest punishment policy that um, went through, those are the most direct that I, I remember. I can't think of a way that a legislator affects what I am teaching in the classroom, my colleagues are teaching in the classroom. Now, one thing that I do think can have an effect is this, this media sphere that can just, uh, it's not an overstatement. If you become a target, it rains hellfire on you. And if you talk to a colleague who has been through this, it, it's awful. It is awful. It is searing emails, phone calls, you know, direct attacks, in case, in some cases, death threats over what you wrote on your syllabus. I mean, it, it is, it's very difficult for those people. So I think less than legislators, you know, people saying, oh, maybe I really shouldn't cover that because I just don't want to end up on campus reform and Twitter and get, you know, all of these um, auto repliers coming at me. So that may result in a little bit of faculty self-censorship, but yeah, it, it's less it's direct meddling from the legislature. 
So is Wisconsin really that unique? Or do you think that your answer would change if you were in a different state, say like a Florida? Wisconsin is not unique. There are lots of places where political actors will be trying to exert power through education, whether that's K through 12 or higher ed. Um, I think, you know, Texas had been the one to watch, but now Florida, the free expression issues that are happening in Florida from, you know, anti-protest legislation to meddling directly in colleges, you know, opposing DEI efforts. And it's fascinating to me. I mean, it's incredibly disappointing to me. Um, but it's fascinating to me that people would be so willing to to do this to win a political victory. Like I just I don't I don't understand the pursuit of power for power's sake. I'm a do-gooder, so I understand the pursuit of power to make things better. Um, do-gooder sounded really silly, didn't it? But I, you know, I would want to be elected to govern. I would not want to be elected to be elected and have power. So I just fundamentally don't understand that. Um, but you know, yeah, you do have the, the uh, selection of boards of governors or boards of regents that are very politically motivated. And yeah, they can get directly involved. I think we're seeing it far more with, again, these culture war issues of, you know, diversity, um, um, gender equity, marriage equality, that, you know, you cannot use this language. Um, that's insane to me. And I don't, I have no idea how it would survive constitutional challenge none whatsoever. And it also, in places like Florida, can really hurt. You, you could see a brain drain from those universities. So we've been speaking a little bit about power, but speaking about power in the context of our public institution, UW-Madison, whose responsibility is it to protect a student's freedom of speech? Does it fall on our peers, professors, the chancellor? Some of these cases make it obviously to the Supreme Court, but for others, how should these issues be dealt with within the context of UW? So this is the one real time on a multiple choice exam where the correct answer is all of the above. We all have to be involved. We all have to be involved, not just in protecting expression, but building the kind of expression on campus that we want to not withdraw when there are controversial issues, to engage and bring forward the ideas that you think are important to bring forward. So if, you know, this is a difficult time in the United States where issues of expression related to LGBTQ folks, for instance, like let's just take, um, <laughs> I can't, almost can't believe this is coming out of my mouth, but attacks on drag queen <laughs> performances, which are, definitely expression, that's artistic expressive conduct. You know, if you don't like those policies, you should speak up and say, no, I, I want people to have the freedom to attend or not attend. You know, no one is forcing me to go see that if I don't like it, um, if it's, you know, a little too loud or brassy for me. Um, but anybody who wants to go should be able to go. Anybody who wants to perform should be able to perform. So we have to express that. Um, you know, this, the the dominant theory of our First Amendment is called the marketplace of ideas. The theory is that ideas are like any other commodity. Um, you know, so Nike shoes versus Adidas shoes, they're in competition in the market and they compete on quality, they compete on price, they compete on brand, compete on all sorts of different things. And then whichever is the superior shoe for a consumer, they'll buy that shoe. The marketplace of ideas says ideas are the same thing. They'll come into this market and they'll duke it out, they'll fight, they'll be in competition, and the truth will win out. The problem is <laughs> the marketplace 
for shoes is a much more regulated market than the marketplace of ideas, which is an almost entirely unregulated market with the exceptions that I mentioned earlier, perjury, bribery, true threats. And so a lot of people don't like what's winning in that competition of the market because it's you know, maybe disinformation. Um, it may be wildly sexist expression, for instance. And they're like, well, why isn't the market regulated? Like, well, the approach that we have adopted in this country, and as I mentioned earlier, critics, I think, fa very fairly question why we make the first, first Amendment as dominant as it is, but we do. And so the only solution to an unregulated marketplace of ideas is getting more ideas into it to counteract the ones you disagree with. So if someone is saying hateful things about a woman CEO just because she's a woman, you need to participate and say that is wrong. I disagree with that misogynistic take. When we withdraw from the market, it gives those toxic ideas or mis and disinformation, outright lies, it gives more space for those to rise to the top rather than the truth. And we all have to be part of it. I don't think we do enough, by the way, to tell students that. I don't think we do enough. You know, we say, oh, here's the statement on free expression at UW-Madison, but we don't say, and we encourage you to get involved. We encourage you to speak. We encourage you to use your social media channels to um, support your own values. I think we are maybe a bit too cavalier in that regard. We just say, yeah, we have free expression. Go for it. We've touched on this topic a little bit. I'm thinking specifically of that example of protests in front of abortion clinics, for example, but that's about this debate surrounding the First Amendment and what happens when speech and personal or public safety come into conflict with each other. So what are the lines there? How do you draw those lines? So there are two, um, two ways there are many ways, but two really important ways to think about line drawing when it comes to you know the conflict of peace and security versus expression. And those are true threats and incitement. So incitement is a pretty clear um, precedent in this country. It comes from a, again, First Amendment history is littered with horrible people. It comes from a just vehemently racist um, KKK member in the late 1960s. Brandenburg is his name. Famous, famous case called Brandenburg versus Ohio. And it gives us a very clear test for when the government um, can successfully try someone for expressing violent thoughts. So it's not enough for you to just advocate violence to say, hey, you know, I think it's time to overthrow Joe Biden, whether we need guns or knives or bazookas, it's time. Like, oh, we're advocating. You know, we're saying, I don't like Biden, that's a good idea. That's not enough. Government can't come after me for that. The First Amendment protects that advocacy. What it doesn't protect is when I am directing that speech at inciting people um, to violent action. And my expression is likely to produce that action. So it doesn't have to actually produce it, but it has to be likely to produce it. So if I'm, you know, just wandering around Library Mall saying something, um, saying something like I just said, um, that's not going to be enough. I'm not, I'm not directing it at any, anyone specifically. I am you know, not providing any means to actually incite them and nobody's gonna be listening to me, right? But if I'm running a Facebook group 
where I'm talking about January 6th, <laughs> and I am coordinating, and, and there, this goes far beyond incitement, it goes to conspiracy and all sorts of other issues, but as you're seeing these January 6th prosecutions, the Brandenburg test is all over the place. Like, free expression is not, does not come without consequences. <laughs> like, there can be consequences when you engage in certain kinds of speech. You know, if I say uh, that, you know, your professor is uh, trading drugs for grades um, and your professor is not, I have made a false allegation that's likely to harm your professor's reputation, I can get sued for libel. <laughs> and quite successfully, if, you're, if your professor is indeed not selling drugs, <laughs> trading drugs for grades. <laughs> Depends on how valuable that A really is to students. Anyway, so the incitement lines are very clear. True threats is an area where a lot of people who'd like to see more regulation of hate speech want us to go. So true threats are not protected by the First Amendment. We had a case in this term called Counterman versus Colorado. Counterman is a mentally ill individual who uh, was convicted under Colorado's anti-stalking law. And he had gone after a musician. I mean, we're talking hundreds of messages directed at her, made her fearful for her life. She stopped uh, performing. She had to move. I mean, it, it, it's a horrible, horrible case. What the Supreme Court held is that the standard for true threats had been when a reasonable person would think that harm is going to befall them because of the expression, that would be considered threat, a true threat, threatening expression. The Supreme Court has now ruled that the, the government is going to have to prove that that was the intent of the speaker. So counterman is not free and clear. It's going to go back and counterman is going to be retried. But the government is now going to have to show that he intended to threaten. He intended to make her fear for her own life and safety. And that's going to be hard with a person who's mentally ill to prove, to prove that intent. So they just made it more difficult for the government to prevail in true threats cases, which I think makes it even more remote that they would be used in that hate speech realm. Yeah, that's a much higher bar to clear. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. And I think if you read, that was a 7-2 decision. If you read the dissenters, what they're saying is, and I think quite convincingly, that, hey, why is no one paying attention to the victim's expression rights? She's an artist. She had to stop performing. Where is her First Amendment protection? Why isn't government making sure that she can do this um, without fear for her own health and safety? So it's an interesting point. It, again, proves these free expression cases are often very, very difficult cases. On that note of blurry lines in this in this debate, you did touch on this a little bit in one of your examples, but where does mis- or disinformation fall in all of this? Can that be seen as incitement? Can that be seen as a true threat? Yeah, it's a great question. A lot of people would like to see much more regulation in the marketplace of ideas when it comes to mis- and disinformation. I think it's really important to draw a clear line between those two things. So misinformation, you should tend to think of as when somebody gets it wrong. They, they legitimately believe something to be true, but they, they either made a mistake or they're not logical. They haven't understood the evidence. You know, I had a, a, I had a relative who genuinely believed and shared on social media that the Pope had endorsed Donald Trump in his run for the presidency. She genuinely believed it and loves the Pope. <laughs> and this was quite persuasive to her. When she shared that, that's misinformation. Right? She just, she got it wrong. Now, that post came from 
the original idea came from a foreign government trying to influence the outcome of the U.S. election, and that is disinformation. So that is where someone is purposefully trying to pollute the information environment and make it toxic for all of us. And I think if you're looking at sort of research and efforts to deal with mis- and disinformation, we're really talking about disinformation. It's, again, very, very hard for us to apply the incitement test to this disinformation sphere. There can be disinformation that does rise to the level of true threats. So, you know, the attempted attack on Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. So there was some social media activity that was, you know, saying, telling lies about Governor Whitmer. And could that rise to the level of true threats? It just got a little harder after countermen. <laughs> All true threats got a little bit harder after countermen. Not impossible, but a little bit harder. On that note of disinformation, what do you think that we should make about another recent court ruling? Boy, there are a lot of them. <laughs> um, it's a busy year. <laughs> it is a busy year. Um, but it was a recent court ruling that blocked the Biden administration from working with social media firms to regulate disinformation. Does that raise questions about protected speech versus disinformation, et cetera? Oh, this case. So this is <laughs> not a Supreme Court case. This is a lower court case. And it, sorry, I can't even muster words because it is a breathtaking decision, an absolutely breathtakingly bad uh, decision. People who work in government have free expression rights as well. This is not the Biden administration saying, Elon Musk, you must take down this thing. It is government saying quite properly, um, Elon Musk, this terrorist message is currently circulating and trending on Twitter. I've made you aware. They're not saying you must do this, you must do that. They're not going to Facebook and saying, please take down all posts that are opposed to the Biden administration. That's not what's happening. It's disinformation that can really harm people. In the case of COVID, disinformation that would make people drink bleach. I don't know about you, but that sounds like really problematic expression to me. And you have all sorts of different kinds of people working in this sphere. So some of them are working for the government. They're working for the agencies. Some of them are working at institutions like this. One works right down the hall from me. There are people who work in the think tank sector. There are people all over the place who are trying to ferret out disinformation that could harm people. And the idea that government could not be in touch with private industry to say something might be problematic is just, it's obscene. I can't even find the words. That's how nutty it is. I mean, it's as if to say, you know, GE Healthcare, we have this documentation that there's radiation leakage from this product that you have. What are you going to do about it? Like, it's not a problem. That is, government is here in part to protect, help protect our health and safety. So this decision, I, I'm trusting it will go down um, pretty quickly. It'll get overruled pretty quickly. I can't imagine that it would stand. Now, there are some really interesting forum shopping going on right now. Uh, this judge actually had a lot of support at confirmation, but I think was a COVID um, vaccine skeptic, I believe. And so this case arose in that jurisdiction with a particular set of facts. But we shall see. Yeah. We shall <laughs> see the outcome, but I would be shocked if it stands. Yeah. Given that these First Amendment interpretations are so broad, it seems like the morals of free speech can get a little murky at times. And seeing as your studies look at the ethics of media and other social tools, do you think that the First Amendment, as it's applied today, is entirely ethical? So 
I don't think the amendment itself can be ethical or unethical. It's the extent to which we will use that amendment to protect expression that may be seen as unethical. Mm -hmm. So the amendment is a set of words, and it's how we interpret it. And we have applied a very libertarian approach, um, so a freedom-protecting approach, as opposed to a communitarian approach, so a, a community-protecting. And I've mentioned a couple of times this you know, kind of conflict between the First Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment. When does protection of speech cause us to be unable to deliver on our equal protection promise of the Fourteenth Amendment? It's a really thorny question. I think we do too little to talk about the responsibilities that come along with these tremendous expression rights. So I mentioned earlier, I'm a little disappointed at some colleges and universities, including my own. When we talk about protecting free expression, we don't do enough to talk about ethics. Like, yes, you have these broad expression rights. I, Jennifer Manukin, am never going to tell you that you cannot say X in your classroom. I'm never going to. It's a public university. She's a big believer in free expression, by the way, and she is never going to censor you in that way. But she can also say, I think you have a responsibility to think about what you're saying in class and how it affects the people around you. Like we have tremendous rights and let's keep protecting those rights. But let's also do more to talk about our responsibilities. It is terrible when an opinion leader, like a politician, will take teeny tiny something, like a little sliver of true, and then spin it up into something much worse. That's not, that's not okay. It's not right. They're not using their expression rights responsibly. You know, someone who is uh, trying to, you know, I'll just say win an election, gain power, and is willing to say or say anything to be able to do that, that's not responsible use of those rights. So yes, protect those rights from government censorship. Government will try to exert power over people. And government itself can outright lie or mislead or, you know, hide things now and again. I'm in a field journalism where we do a lot of prying of information out of government through open records requests, for instance. So we don't want to cede all this power uh, to government. But we all have to talk about how to use our rights more responsibly. And by the way, that's not just First Amendment rights. Like, I tell my students all the time. You have a right to vote. If you're not using it, what? Like, no, you have a responsibility to understand who you would be electing as your representatives and why you would skirt that responsibility. I have no clue. This question is a little bit more general, but how do you feel about the way that the First Amendment is applied in universities and school systems today? And do you think there might be any room for improvement here? I think the room for improvement is talking more with students at all levels about the power of their expression rights and getting involved, being part of that marketplace. Our interpretation of the First Amendment is not going to be changing. It's just, it's just not anytime soon, particularly with the makeup of this court. Although, you know, we talk a lot about a court that's divided politically um, and, you know, whether they're conservative justice or liberal justices, the First Amendment cases make for a lot of interesting, like there's some strange bedfellows going on in those decisions because it's, it's a place where it's not clearly that liberals would think this and conservatives would think that. So I think given the interpretation that we have, this, this dominance of a particular theory of free expression, I think we need to do more early on, like kindergartners should be understanding what it means to responsibly use your rights to free expression. And when you have to be strong enough to not self-censor, 
to not stay out of important political debates, and when you do need to self-censor. You do need to say, hmm, nope, that is not going to be the responsible way to use my expression rights. And look, you know, I had some people in my life when we were having, you know, all sorts of cars being overturned and windows smashed and set on fire in the summer of 2020. And defending that, I, I don't think that that was a responsible use of your right to protest, your right to assembly and speech. I don't support violence. <laughs> I, I don't. And I, I don't think enough of us uh, called that out at a time when we really should have. Mm-hmm. And finally, so we've covered a lot of interesting topics here today, but is there anything else that we have not yet touched on that you think we should? Yeah, I think we do need to talk a little bit more about power. Another important thing to understand about the marketplace of ideas is that just like the marketplace for shoes, uh, there are some super powerful actors in the marketplace and there are some that are not. So I could go out and create the world's greatest athletic shoe. And I am never going to win that competition in the market with Nike and Adidas. They're just too powerful. I'm going to get some people like me to buy my shoes, but I'm never, I'm never going to be the market leader. The same thing applies in the marketplace of ideas. And when we talk about equal protection under the law through the 14th Amendment, we have to think about who does not get heard in that marketplace. And this is where, by the way, people who would argue for regulation of hate speech, I think they misunderstand that when you give government, actually when you give anybody, but let's say say government, when you give government the power to censor, they're going to use that power against the least powerful people. Like the the most vulnerable people in a society are going to be the most regulated. They're going to be the most policed. And so anything that we do to try to regulate expression, that's not going to hurt billionaires. It's not going to hurt college professors who have, you know, a big podium and a microphone. Um, It's not going to hurt the CEO of the dominant corporation in the state. It's just not. It's going to be used against the weakest members. And that's why we have to be very, very careful to think about what we are allowing government to do. And that's why you see groups like the American Civil Liberties Union doing things like filing front of the court briefs to support Mr. Counterman, who we talked about earlier in the True Threats case. They're saying, look, (laughs) give government an inch, they're going to take a mile. And they're going to take that mile against the people who are least able to defend themselves. And so that's, I think, an important part of this marketplace conception that we don't necessarily talk about enough. That, you know, people who are already marginalized get more marginalized within that market quite often. And and we got to be careful about that. That's why, just to bring it all back to UW-Madison, that's why those protests in the 1960s against the Vietnam War here and on other campuses were so interesting. Because these college students, they weren't powerful. I mean, a lot of them came from, you know, wealthy, highly educated backgrounds, but they weren't, you know, the grand corporations of the world. You know, they weren't defense contractors. They weren't politicians. They were just a bunch of, you know, scrappy 18-year-olds who decided that they were going to try to get the U.S. to pull out of this war. That's remarkable. And so I think anytime we think about expression, we have to think about who actually has the ability within a society to speak. And it's not our most vulnerable citizens. Well, that's a really great note to end on. Thank you again so, so much, Professor Culver, for joining us today. As always, this has been a really great discussion, and we really appreciate you coming on the show.